This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Cresswell Eastman. He will be looking at the issue of living with thyroid disease and how GPs can better support and manage their patients with thyroid disease. Professor Eastman, briefly, tell us about yourself. Well, David, I am uh, an endocrinologist, come chemical pathologist and uh, public health physician. My major specialty is in endocrinology and my major interest in endocrinology is in thyroid disorders with a particular link to iodine deficiency where I've done a lot of work in uh, not only Australia, but throughout uh, the Asia-Pacific region, and in particular in China and Tibet and, uh, and Thailand, which uh, to mention a few. Professor Eastman, I would like to start by asking you once again to cover the issue of women who have just found out that they are pregnant and are taking thyroxine. What should we do? Now, as part of her management leading up to the fact that she may get pregnant or she wants to get pregnant, then you've got to give her strong advice. She has to understand that as soon as she gets pregnant, she's going to need to increase the thyroxine dosage because pregnancy, as we've discussed before, results in increased stimulation of the thyroid gland and increase in thyroid hormone production, say 50% over and above the pre-pregnant state. So how do we handle this? So if, if a woman reaches that stage, she's got a missed period, so she has a pregnancy test, she should immediately get her thyroid function tested. That's the baseline. It's going to tell you what's happening. And the advice is you must increase your thyroxine as soon as you've had the blood test. Um, and you should increase it by around 25%. In other words, if you're on 100 micrograms a day, that's your current stable dosage you need to increase that up to 125 micrograms a day or whatever, but that 25% increase in your dosage. It will, may well go up to 50%, but we will monitor, monitor your tests over the first three months or, or thereabouts, and we'll, we'll, we'll judge as to what increase you need. Now, even if you can't get hold of me, my phone's not working, I'm in the Himalayas somewhere or Northern Thailand doing something, don't worry, that's what you've got to do because that's exactly what I tell you to do or advise you to do as soon as you call. Mm -hmm. So I think these women have got to be empowered to do that mm -hmm. or the GP has also got to understand that. So part mm -hmm. of, of uh, any reports you get, that should probably be in those reports. That's the way to manage it. So again, I'm, I'm emphasising the need to ensure keeping thyroid function normal throughout pregnancy as best you can, you know, using all the tools that we've got, um, because you don't get another go, and that fetus, that child, will forever appreciate the fact that you managed to the mother correctly during pregnancy, and that child will then go on to have its full exercise, its full um, intellectual potential. In your previous podcast, Professor Eastman, you covered a lot in regard to particular groups of patients, the elderly uh, and women who are thinking of conceiving and the pregnant woman. To begin with this podcast, 
I would like to bring up another group of patients who may well be living with thyroid disease, albeit subclinically, that we don't even think about. So I would like you to teach us about or tell us about iron deficiency and thyroid disease in children. Okay, thank you, David. Well, iodine deficiency is worldwide the commonest cause of intellectual impairment, brain disorders, intellectual impairment. And that has affected hundreds of millions of people worldwide. And within our own region of the world, this has been a massive problem in China and Tibet and countries like Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and so on. So it's been a massive, massive problem. In Australia, we were relatively free of this up until the Second World War, then goiter due to iodine deficiency was relatively common along the, uh, the Great Western the dividing range from up in, in Queensland all the way down to Victoria and in Tasmania. And indeed in Tasmania up until around the 1950s, 50% of children there had goiters due to iodine deficiency. That all changed with the dairy industry using antibacterial agents called iodophores, iodine mm -hmm. uh, connected to, to a, uh, an agent, a solubilizing agent, which was used for antibacterial, uh, anti-sanitizing milk teats, the cans used in the, you know, in holding dairy milk and even the tankers. So that iodine leaked out of the iodophores into the milk and that ended up in all sorts of dairy products from your daily drink of milk to uh, yogurts and cakes, whatever that the dairy uh, materials were used in. And that kept us relatively free of iodine deficiency until the dairy industry changed its practices in the 1990s. And uh, our team at Westmead discovered that goiters in children were becoming very common, soft, small changes in thyroid thyroid glands in children. What actually happens with iodine deficiency is that those goiters increase with, in size with time and they also start to develop nodules so that by the time you're middle-aged and getting into older age, you have larger multi-nodular goiters mm -hmm. which will not resolve with medical therapy uh, and either they're left alone, you live with them, or alternatively they cause obstruction or concern about cancer problems with breathing or eating and end up being having to be surgically removed. Now, um, we were relatively free of this, as I said, because of the iodine in milk until the late 1990s when uh, our team at Westmean discovered that iodine deficiency had re-emerged in Australia. And that took, uh, it took a big effort to do a national study, to do a study throughout Australia with uh, children of being representative of of all regions in Australia, and it showed that the children were iodine deficient. But also what we discovered was that the gland, thyroid glands were increasing in size. So we measured these uh, thyroid glands, not by simply by palpation, by you know looking at them and palpating them. We did ultrasound measurements of volume in all these children and discovered that lo and behold, Australia had returned to being a country defined by WHO criteria as being iodine deficient. Mm -hmm. And that's rather than accepting universal salt iodization, which is the simple solution, uh, the best we could do in negotiating with our health authorities was to obtain mandatory 
iodization of all salt going into baked products. So children are relatively protected now. We know the data from surveys around the countryside that our children are relatively well protected from iodine deficiency disorders. As I mentioned in our previous podcast, while that has fixed the problem in children and other adults, it hasn't fixed the problem in pregnant women who need extra iodine through pregnancy. So if you are confronted with someone with a goiter, then the likely causes are on a worldwide basis would be iodine deficiency. And the next common, commonest problem is autoimmune thyroid disease. The mm -hmm. uh, commonest manifestation is Hashimoto's disease, which is a, an infiltrative uh, disorder with destruction of the thyroid gland due to immune cells infiltrating the thyroid, gradually destroying it. Uh, it may leave you with a goiter, may cause the gland to enlarge, but ultimately leading to hypothyroidism. The other end of the spectrum is the goiter that uh, is caused by an overactive thyroid, and that is Graves' disease, that's far as common. So they're the major causes. So if you're confronted by a person, particularly a child with a, a goiter, then iodine deficiency, you've got to think about, but now it's less likely than what it was you know, 15 or 20 years ago. And more likely that child has autoimmune thyroid disease. And you can find that by doing an ultrasound examination, which may tell you looking at the size and the texture of the gland. And of course, measuring their blood test thyroid autoantibodies particularly thyroid peroxidase antibody, which is the uh, more specific antibody. So that's the way you, you would approach that child in terms of making a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. If they have Hashimoto's disease, then with the passage of time, they're going to be, develop hypothyroidism at the rate of 1% to 2% per year. So it may not happen for 10 or 20 years or 30 years or whatever, mm -hmm. but it will happen. So once they have that and you know that they have autoimmune disease, that person, patient, must know that and be aware of that so that they can always tell the medical attendants into the future, look, I have this underlying problem. Is this the cause of my current symptoms? Now, I'm going to bring up a slightly difficult issue here, Chris. Um, say I have an adult patient with a goiter. Uh, we've uh, investigated it. The surgeons have said, yeah, we'll probably just keep an eye on it, but we won't do much about it. It's not causing much symptoms. It's a bit unsightly. Uh, the patient's not real happy because I'm just monitoring it and then informs me that he will be seeking alternative opinions. Now, what do I need to know about integrative medications and alternative um, forms of treatment so that I can be aware of what might be happening? David, in a previous podcast, we talked about the uh, medication for an underactive thyroid, hypothyroidism, and I made the point that monotherapy with levothyroxine was the accepted standard of care, and that's how you treat a patient. I said there were alternatives, such as giving T3, triiodothyronine. Now, let me go back one step and say that while monotherapy with thyroxine is the standard of care, it's a pro-hormone. It's not in itself intrinsically biologically active. It is converted in the body to T3. In other words, it loses one iodine off in that, that molecule and that becomes active when it becomes T3. It mm -hmm. can become can go to reverse T3 or T2 or other iodothyronines, which are all biologically inactive. 
So, so the way it works is your thyroid gland produces thyroxine, which then gets converted in the body with liver, kidney, muscle tissue into T3, which is the biologically active hormone. Now, in the fetus, it's a bit different in that the brain converts the thyroxine to T3 directly in the brain. So the fetus is dependent upon thyroxine coming to it uh, rather than just T3. All right. So that, that's the basic physiology. Now, there are a lot of people, how much varies depending on who you believe or what you read. Mm-hmm. They say that, look, I'm not doing well. Thyroxine's not fixed my symptoms. I'm still tired. I'm still putting on weight. I'm still not happy. I've lost my libido. And thyroxine's not working for me. And, and no matter how much the doctor reassures the patient, look, your blood tests are, are good. You know, your TSH level is correct. Your free thyroxine level is correct. Uh, clinically, I can't find anything wrong with you. Mm-hmm. The patient leaves the surgery and says, well, it's got to be my thyroid. After all, they found out that I've got a thyroid problem. I've been underactive and, and they've given me thyroxine, but it hasn't fixed my problems. I've still got these symptoms, some of which I've just left listed. These are the people that are influenced by word of mouth, social media or whatever. They go and read about it and they read a testimony you know, on the internet. Uh, from someone saying, I had this problem, they gave me thyroxine, it didn't work. I went to an integrated medical practitioner or a naturopath and they prescribed me desiccated thyroid extract, which they told me was the natural therapy. I'm taking that. I'm now feeling a lot brighter. I've got more energy. I'm more active. Therefore, the doctors giving me thyroxine got it wrong. The ones giving me desiccated thyroid, I've got it right. Well, N equals one. <laughs> okay. mm. and and. Well, what's going wrong here? Well, we're not certain. There are a few small percentage of patients that lack the enzymes or have a decrease in the amount of enzymes that convert the T4 thyroxine to T3. Mm-hmm. So they have a general... There are a few that have a genuine biological reason for not feeling well. Mm-hmm. They're pretty rare, but, but they're there. But you'll pick those up with your thyroid conscious test. In my, and this is an opinion, and I think shared by many experts in the field, my opinion, a lot of these patients, their symptoms are not due to their thyroid. They've been found to have slightly abnormal thyroid function, maybe much more, maybe more than slightly abnormal, but they're not, that's not the cause of their symptoms. Now, the patient, for example, tell you their major symptom is their tiredness. Doctor, I get up in the morning, I seem to have had a good sleep, but I'm still as tired as ever. Mm-hmm. These are people, for example, with sleep apnea. The other patient saying, I can't lose weight. I thought my being overweight and my fat around my tummy was all due to the fact that my thyroid wasn't working properly. You've given me thyroxine. I'm still as fat as ever. I don't, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. That's another example. Mm-hmm. And these are people that have got insulin resistance and are developing type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. for example. So that their anticipation, their expectation was... Mm-hmm. that giving you thyroxine is going to fix all these problems. And we as doctors have often led them to that, saying, well, look, your thyroid's underactive, we'll give you thyroxine, and life's going to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it isn't. Mm-hmm. So these are the ones that then go off, and they're seduced by this advertising, um, as I said, by word of mouth or social media or whatever, that you know you need this natural therapy. 
The natural therapy they're talking about is desiccated thyroid extract. Now, I'm one of the sort of older brigade. And when I was a young fellow learning my endocrinology at the Middlesex Hospital in London or St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, they used to prescribe thyroid extract. That was before the, the synthetic material was readily available. Mm-hmm. And I remember quite well, we didn't have ways of measuring TSH and pt 4 in blood in those days. It was protein-bound iodine and various nuclear medicine-type test scanning. But it was essentially based on symptoms. So if Mrs. Jones or Mr. Jones came through the door and said, Doctor, I'm not feeling so good. I'm not, you know, tired all the time. The prescribing doctor in the clinic said, well, right, you need some more. Oh, we'll increase your thyroid extract. And they'd come back in a month or two and say, look, I'm feeling a lot better. I've got more energy. And the reason they do that is that a thyroid extract has got a lot more T3 in it than T4. It's got multiple other things in it as well because it's a crude, in my view, a very crude preparation. I mean, it's awful. It's coming from, from sheep or pigs. Mm-hmm. And, but you're getting more T3 than you need. And T3 is therefore you're being over-treated, you're getting a stimulant. That's a bit like giving you an amphetamine. Mm. You feel a lot better. Not, you're not necessarily better, but you've got, you're much brighter and a lot more energy because you're taking a pharmacological dose of T3. Now, there are lots of people, stimulants or things people take to make themselves feel better. They aren't necessarily correct medications, nor are they replacement. So that's just an example of where that is absolutely wrong. And people misunderstanding that it's natural. Now, you know, I think we have to listen to our patients. We have to respect their choices. Mm -hmm. We have to give them information upon which they can make their choices. But I think we've got to all same time stand up for what is scientifically accurate, what is biologically correct. And this is not biologically correct to be treating you with an extract from an animal. You know, because it's not natural i mean people think it's natural taking you know sheep or pig thyroid i don't think that's very natural at all the natural material in that is t4 and t3 we know what the chemicals are we know how they act we know where they act, how they act so this idea that it's natural you know is is misinformation it's misleading people but they don't have the scientific training like you and i to understand that <laughs> and we have health practitioners who take advantage of this either they believe it themselves or they're taking advantage of it for commercial gain or whatever uh, and and they go along these lines so i think you have to confront it i think you have to be honest and confront it and at the same time recognize that like a lot of things that happen on social media there's no way you're going to talk the patient out of it but i think you have to put the case to them correctly and then assist them through managing it one of the things I talk about when we deal with this, um, and people tell me, oh, yes, but what you're pre- prescribing, doctor, is there a chemical? I'm saying, yes, but that's, that's the natural product. We know exactly what it is. We know exactly how to use it. I say, well, look, I go back, you know, I've been around long enough to talk about the old days. You know, they'll throw their heads back and look to the ceiling and think, here it goes again. But, you know, I take them back to the use of extracts of um, other tissues and other glands, for example, growth hormone, treating growth hormone deficiency in children with short stature. What was given was the pituitary extract, and a lot of children were treated with that. At the same time, uh, women who could not get pregnant, they were given fertility hormones being gonadotrophins from the pituitary, extracted from pituitary tissue. Sadly, these tissues 
often contain this prion, or not often, sometimes, contain this prion, they're called uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's, CJ disease, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease. In animals, mad cow disease. And the sad fact that these people were given these medications and ended up with these disastrous diseases that gave them terrible morbidity and shortened their lives. So I talk about this and saying, you know, people call this natural. Well, it's far from natural. Nowadays, we give the direct hormone. We don't see those sort of diseases. So I think it's worthwhile explaining to people that there are downsides to all of this and that's some of the downsides. So I try and explain that. But, you know, sometimes you can't get people to change their mind. Mm-hmm. But I think I come back to the point if people are complaining they're living with their thyroid disorder, but they're not well, the thyroxine hasn't fixed them up. Okay. You either haven't got the dosage right, or alternatively, you're missing something else. Mm-hmm. And the two commonest things you're missing, in my experience, for what it's worth, is that you're missing sleep apnea and you're missing insulin resistance, mm-hmm. early development pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes. To me, that, that's been so common. There are other things they're missing and other odd diseases you'll pick up, but they've been the commonest. I think if you, if you just get your mind and practice out of that silo and think a bit more laterally, mm-hmm. uh, you, you'll think through these things and you'll come up with answers for most of them. I think, you know, you've got to be careful not to dismiss the patient mm-hmm. and says, all right, well, you know, my integrative medical practitioner or my naturopath or whatever prescribed me this extract desiccated extract went to the compounding chemist and got it and i'm much brighter and happier therefore you got it wrong doctor i mean i think you've got to say okay i appreciate what you're saying but let, let's talk it through and work it through thank you for giving us a way forward with that chris but i do think that sometimes maybe we do mm-hmm. initiate thyroxine without giving and having a discussion with the patients to set the expectations right in the first place. Bearing that in mind, what kind of discussions do you think a GP can have with a patient who is about to start thyroxine the very first time? Okay, well, given given the situation of someone's grossly clinically hypothyroid, in other words, when you look at them, you can see the facial changes, their skin changes with keratinemia, um, they've got the puffy um, puffiness around their eyes, their loss of hair, um, and their slow reflexes. I mean, they've, they've got you know, clinical hypothyroidism. Most of these patients, if not all of you treat them, they will feel wonderful and get be better within a couple of months, as mm-hmm. we've talked before about giving them thyroxine. But they're not most of the patients that you see. Most of the patients you see, they've come along complaining of symptoms, whether it be weight, gain, hair loss, libido loss, tiredness, lack of energy, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and you've done, you've looked at everything and you've thought about things like, is this iron deficiency? Is it anemia? Mm-hmm. Is it renal disease? Is it thyroid disease? And you've done a whole lot of screening tests and back comes everything looking fairly normal, except the TSH is mildly elevated. Maybe the upper range of 4.5, say, in your laboratory. It's come back at five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe up to 10. Then you've said, look, okay, I've got an answer. But I think the most important thing should be to say to the patient, we may have an answer, not that we have an answer. We may have an answer. We have evidence that you mildly borderline hypothyroid. We're going to treat you. 
because mm -hmm. you've got symptoms. And on top of that, you've got objective evidence, you know, cholesterol's high or whatever. So we will treat you, but we're going to do a six-month trial. Mm -hmm. going, what we're going to do is see if giving you this replacement therapy fixes these problems, the ones that we can measure and see, and I'll do the blood tests on you and the clinical examination on you, mm -hmm. and, and you will report back to me and tell me how you're feeling, and then we'll reassess from there. In other words, we're not quite certain because unless you have grossly obvious hypothyroidism, we're not certain your symptoms are all coming from this disturbance. Mm -hmm. You've got it. We should treat it, but we need to treat it on the basis of we will treat you this way. This is the way we'll manage your medication and we'll monitor it and we'll make a decision. We'll agree to make a decision six months down the track. Now, that decision is, yes, we're doing well. So we'll keep on going and we'll rethink this again, we'll have a repeat mm -hmm. consultation. We will think about repeat and we'll rethink this in six months' time. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, look, we've made no difference to you uh, whatsoever. Clearly, we're missing the point. There's something else wrong with you. We need to relook, or I need to get somebody else to have a look at you. But mm -hmm. rather than say, well, let's change you over to another form of therapy, let's say, give you an extra dose and overtreat you or whatever, in desperation, I think honesty is the best policy. Good mm -hmm. medicine says we haven't got it right. We've treated the numbers, but the numbers haven't made any difference to you. Therefore, let's look at this again, mm -hmm. a complete rethink, or I'll get somebody else that have a rethink that may be able to advise me on the matter. I think that mm -hmm. stops you getting into trouble. That stops the patient going down, down these um, blind alleys or going off to integrative mm -hmm. practitioners. I'm not absolutely against integrative practitioners, but... I don't see. I don't see the point of, of um, sending them off to that sort of practice of alternative medicine. Hmm. And I can see how these sorts of discussion really sets it up for all sorts of possibilities in the future, and really is a source of, um, if you like, uh, a great trust um, and a good communications with our patients. Well, it is. It's being honest, isn't it? And 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 you develop that trust in the you know between you and the patient and uh that's the way i think we should be practicing medicine and that's my mm. view that's what i teach my students how about the very difficult issue of patients who don't really adhere or you know with their medications um any tips there yeah i mean i used to say um rather stupidly look i've never seen a patient that um i couldn't treat with thyroxine that you know we didn't get right and people would say, oh, yes. And, of course, that was a, a problem of youth. There are patients that, no matter what you do, their mm -hmm. thyroid function tests remain abnormal. Now, mm -hmm. uh, what I've learned, it comes back to being one of two things. One, they aren't taking their medication uh, or they're forgetting to take their medication. Mm -hmm. And that, in my view, personal view, is a human thing. If you have ever been on medication, I have, then occasionally I forget. Yeah. Or I don't, I try and remember, did I take it this morning or was it yesterday? But because you do it, it's like the, the diabetic on taking insulin, unless they can see the syringe there, mm. because it's been something they've been doing day in and day out that, you know, your memory reconstructs you in the bathroom, having your injection or taking your tablets or whatever. So you reconstruct. So now we do forget. Um, so if that's the case, then I think we have to ensure, set up ways that, with the pharmacist to ensure that they do take their medication or if they haven't then it will become obvious they haven't so if they're honest it's easy 
if they're cheating, it's not easy. That's you can't change that. That's one side of it. Mm -hmm. The other side is the person who's taking their medication, but it's it's not being absorbed properly. Now, we say to our patients, you know, you must take your medication on an empty stomach first thing in the morning and wait at least 30 minutes before you eat. Probably it'll be a bit longer. If you can't do that, then last thing at night, three hours, at least three hours after you've had a meal before you go to bed. That's the alternative. I've had patients then that we can't get them right and they've come in and I've said to them, you're taking it? Yes, look, I get up at um, you know five o'clock and I take my medication. I go back to bed or I do this or this and I've, I've you know, I've done, I haven't missed a dose, etc. And I'll say to them, you're fasting? Yes, I was fasting. And you've taken it with water? Oh, no, I take it with a coffee. I have a coffee in the morning and I take it then. And, you know, the mistake I've made is that I've said to them, you, to, you've taken it fasting first thing in the morning. They said, yes, and I've ticked that box. But what I didn't ask, did you have it with water? So there are people who have milk mm -hmm. first thing. And, and if you have milk, I think it's the calcium in the milk that binds some of the thyroxine. So it's not absorbed correctly. Or they've taken other medications, for example, the proton pump inhibitors. Mm -hmm. They've taken that at the same time, and that can have a significant effect on absorption. There are a whole host of medications, iron, iron tablets. So the other thing is, well, sure, you've taken it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach with water and no other medications, mm -hmm. and you haven't eaten for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, the vast majority of patients, when you've addressed those two issues of forgetfulness or, you know, some people are, you know, are dishonest, unfortunately, uh, but if you've addressed that issue, they are taking it, mm -hmm. but it's not being absorbed properly. Just come back to the point that when we're taking our thyroxine medication, the absorption varies somewhere between 50 and 80, 90% from one person to another. So you might be a 60% absorber. I might be a 70% absorber. So even though we might be of similar body weight, our ultimate end, point, end dose will vary a bit depending on how well we absorb it. So a lot of the problems we have result from malabsorption, often as a consequence of other foods, which I've instanced some of them, or medications that, that cause variation in absorption from day to day. So I think if you address those issues... Mm -hmm. You usually get it right, not yeah. always. And then, you know, if that's you haven't got it right, then you have to set up some sort of method of uh, administering the medication and measuring the result. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it, it's it's tough, but that's that's that medicine's often tough to get it right. I might just add one little thing here, which um, we we get wrong frequently. A little tip, mm -hmm. and that is. We give the patient the request form to go off and get the pathology done. Mm -hmm. And we say to them, um, you know, good idea. You, you should, you know, best to get it done early in the morning, you know, when you're fasting. And that's what we tell them. That, you know, most people get their blood tests done then, particularly if you're getting your lipids or whatever, or your blood sugar's done, that's when you get it done. But what actually happens is that if these patients, you've already instructed them, take your thyroxine first thing in the morning on an empty stomach. They've mm -hmm. done that, but they're otherwise fasting. So they go and get their blood test done and the blood collector asks them, are you fasting? Yes. But what actually happens if you've taken your medication, your thyroxine gets absorbed and you get a blip. So your free T4 level may go up 20%. Okay. 
And you will look at that, the doctor, and you think, oh, my goodness, I'm over-treating you, even though your TSH looks normal, I'm over-treating you because look at your free T4 level, it's gone up. So it's a bit of a trap. So what you've got to tell the patient, I think, is, yeah, look, I know I've given you instructions. <laughs> you've got to take your medication on an empty stomach. Please don't take it the morning you have your blood test. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Take it after you've had your blood test. Mm -hmm. Take it along with you. After some water and you have it immediately after you've had your blood test. Mm -hmm. But don't take it before. It's a trap for young players. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing that confounds the results and, and creates what sometimes seem to be problems that are difficult to resolve. Mm -hmm. I'll just add one more because I have to be honest. I have seen patients coming back or patients being given complex doses, dosage regime, you know, take three tap, uh, take it on three days a week, or take 50 micrograms on Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and 100 on Tuesday. So it, not only do they have to remember it, um, the, the dosages in the number of days are, are even more confusing and adds to the confusion. David, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, I think, well, I, I don't have to take thyroxine, but if someone had me taking different doses on three, five, whatever days of the week, look, after a couple of weeks, I'd be so confused. I wouldn't know what I was doing and I'd get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, maybe my mother didn't have enough iodine when she had me. I'm not smart enough, but, but I'll be getting it wrong. Okay. Yep. Now, one of the ways around this is to advocate for smaller dosage tablets and we now at least have 75 tablets and I think 125 microgram tablets. Eltroxin mm -hmm. and Levoxine have got a wider dosage schedule. Okay. I have been arguing with the, the company, not arguing, advocating to them, I guess is a better word, the company that makes uh, Eutroxic and Eroxine and Eltroxin to provide 25 microgram tablets. Because if you're going to make a small change... Mm -hmm then I think you've got to be taking the same dosage of tablets every day. One alternative that does work is if you're going to admit it, you know, you're going to make a small change. Mm -hmm. And given the half-life of thyroxine is about five days, you, you, know, you can omit tablets one day a week. So if in manipulating the dosage, you need to omit it one day a week, you know, I always try to ensure that there's one day that you don't take it. And that's the sort of never on Sunday, you know? Sunday's your day off. People remember that. But other than that, we really need to have smaller dosage tablets, and I think even down to 12.5 micrograms. So I think we've got to keep on advocating for the 25s and 12.5s so that you can prescribe those dosages. The patients don't have to look at their, their calendar and say, what day of the week is it? Do I take three tablets today or do I take two tablets today or whatever? They don't have to do that. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a real problem. Could you once again tell us uh, which are the uh, formulations with the wider dosages uh, that we can prescribe? Levoxine, one of the new ones that's come on the market. It's got wider dosages. They can be prescribed. Uh, L-troxin, which is the one that's not bioequivalent to the others, mm -hmm. have also got wider dosages. Okay. And I think we've got to keep on advocating for 25, we haven't got 25s and 12.5s. Mm -hmm. we, we need to be advocating for those. I'll, okay. I'll keep advocating for that. Well, thank you for doing that for us. Well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, if I were the patient, I can tell you, now, I'd, be, I'd be giving my doctor a bad time. 
I'd be going in and saying, oh, I've got it wrong again. I can't remember what to do or how can I do it? What do I do to get my tablets right? So you need with a pharmacist to set up some sort of system that the patient can get it right mm. rather than saying, you open the bottle in the morning and saying, what do I take, two of them today or three of them? Or, or how many do I take today? What day of the week? You know, you, I, I, maybe you know, obsessive compulsive people can do that, but mm. most of us you know, struggle. Yep, I'll put my hand up there as well. Yeah, well so, so, Chris, I'm just wondering whether or not there are important issues about living with thyroid disease and take, having to live taking thyroid tablets that I have not covered with you yet. Well, we haven't talked uh, about treatment of hyperthyroidism, mm -hmm. which is a, a less common disorder. And again, nothing much has changed with this. You know, in, in literally in a lifetime, we have, you know, we have three forms of treatment, one being antithyroid drug therapy, the second one being surgery, total thyroidectomy, mm -hmm. and the third one being radioactive iodine therapy. Mm -hmm. The drugs that we've got haven't changed at all in, in, in literally in a lifetime. Our general approach is to, to, and I always teach, that each of these treatments is satisfactory, but none is ideal. So again, working with the patient when you start, I think early on you've got to make the point that each of these treatments is satisfactory. We'll mm -hmm. discuss each one of them to see which is appropriate for you and what your choice is. So, and I say to patients, you know, what the end result is, it's patient choice, but that will be influenced by the physician bias. In other words, mm -hmm. if I'm a person that likes the idea of surgery or long-term medication, or radioactive iodine, then of course I'll give you that advice. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that we talk to them about you know patient choice and physician bias, and then we talk them through. So we'll start you. You've got an overactive thyroid. We're going to start you on antithyroid drug medication, mm -hmm. but I don't want to treat you forever with this because who knows how long you're going to have to stay on it. Mm -hmm. You know you might go into remission, you might not, or you go into remission and you'll have a relapse and start again. So, you know, you may want to say, well, look, I'll, I'll try that and see what happens to me, but that's pretty unsatisfactory. The next alternative is to say, well, look, we're going to prescribe definitive therapy by way of a total thyroidectomy. There's no point doing a subtotal because if you have an overactive thyroid and Graves' disease, autoimmune thyroid disease, it'll come back again. And that means you have to get an expert surgeon that's doing a lot of this sort of surgery. It's not for the amateur. It's not for the guy that, you know, plays once a week. It's like your golf. You've got to be doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get make certain they get an expert surgeon to minimise complications, but also telling, telling the patient they're trading off taking their antithyroid medication or they're trading it all off for the fact they're going to have to take thyroxine replacement for the rest mm -hmm. of their lives, mm -hmm. you know, which is not a great trade-off, is it? It's not as though... You know, I'm going to take your appendix out and you're going to be fine or <laughs> finished, done. It's not. If you do a total thyroidectomy, there's risk of complications and there's the, you know, the downside that you take medication for the rest of your life. The third thing is giving radioactive iodine, which is simpler, cheaper, easier, less painful. All seems so simple. But again, the trade-off is that you're going to have to take thyroxine for the rest of your life. <laughs> the third issue, or the issue, sorry, the other issue with that is that Increasing worry that in the longer term, we're now seeing that there is increasing risk of 
developing a solid type cancer in, in other organs. Small, small risk, but it is there. You might say, well, you know, I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen to me in 50 years' time or 40, 50 years' time. I've got enough other things to worry about. So they're the issues because you start back, come back to the premise that I've put to you, that each of these are satisfactory and they can fix the disorder, but in each of them there is a, a trade-off and there are complications or outcomes that are not entirely uh, perfect. Mm -hmm. So you have to take them into the management uh, knowing this and so that they can they have time to make the appropriate choice with you, the physician, and you'll support them through it. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'll not just treat you and then get rid of you. You know, say goodbye, that's it. Mm -hmm. You've got to make certain that you set up appropriate long-term care for patients. So that is a challenge. You know, it's mm -hmm. a big challenge in itself. If you opted for uh, anti-thyroid medications, how long would you keep them on before you think, I wonder if they've actually, uh, if the disease has uh, gone into remission? Yeah, good question. And something that's uh, been extensively studied. The arbitrary figures, we give people a 12-month trial. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just an arbitrary figure to give you a ballpark figure. Now, it may well be that the patient goes into remission within a few months. Mm -hmm. These are usually people that don't have big goiters. They're quite small goiters and they go into remission. You can stop the medication and take them off and say, look, we'll, our policy is wait and see. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, you give them for 12-month trial and they're still hyperthyroid in 12 mm -hmm. months, and you've got to make a decision. Okay. One of the important issues here in making the decision is what is your thyroid receptor antibody level? This is the thyroid stimulator. This is the antibody that acts on the cell membrane of the, the thyroid tissue mm -hmm. to activate the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormone. So it's mm -hmm. acting like TSH. Mm -hmm. Now, if that level is above normal or high, then you know that that patient is unlikely to go into remission. Okay. Now, you might say, well, look, we'll extend. Why don't we extend it for another six months? But if you aren't in remission or your thyroid automatic, but that level is, receptor antibody level is high, then we have to consider surgery or radioactivity. Mm -hmm. I think, again, you walk the patient through this as you go along. So they're comfortable with the decision-making process. They're not, they don't come, come in and get something which is a surprise to them, walk out and say to their relatives, I'm not certain what I'm doing, or he just told me I now need radioactive iodine. Mm -hmm. Last time I saw him or her, mm -hmm. they said all I needed was tablets. So you really have to walk them through this again. It's, you know, it's, as I said, each is satisfactory, non-ideal. And it's patient choice. So they've got to understand these choices and how you will make a decision, mm. knowing, you know, mm. and you tell them what your own bias is. In other words, mm. if I have a young woman that's clearly not going into remission very quickly and knowing that she wants to ultimately have a family, then I would want to do definitive therapy sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Because the last thing you want is to her to be hyperthyroid during pregnancy. The second thing is I don't want to give her radioactive iodine because that may have mm -hmm. a negative effect on her ovaries and um, that's not a good idea. So, you know, that's the sort of woman I would be leading towards a thyroidectomy. Mm -hmm. Equally, if it's a young child, and I've just seen one recently from Singapore, 14-year-old girl who 
who'd had a reaction to anti antithyroid drug medication <laughs> and they wanted to keep giving it to her or give her radioactive iodine and the answer was she needed surgery and that's the way to do it so so you know you you have to you have to prepare for this <laughs> early on in the in the management so you the gp i think have to work with the endocrinologist or whoever is looking after the patient in specialist care and you have to work with them and and even question them and say well, look what are you thinking? What are you planning? What's going to be the next step? Not just, well, the report is thyroid function is now normal. We continue this dose or reduce it or whatever. It's got to be, well, what are we trying to do and how are we trying to get there? Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's got to be a joint management program, mm -hmm. I think, with the GP, with the patient, mm -hmm. with a clear understanding of how you're going to go about it, how you're going to make those decisions. Two small groups of patients, just to get your advice, uh, these are patients who initially show their hyperthyroid with Hashimoto's and also the viral thyroid diagnosis. Uh, how do we manage them in the hyperthyroid state? Interesting, uh, with COVID, there's been a lot of reports of COVID vaccination are causing episodes of subacute thyroiditis mm -hmm. and even causing or precipitating hyperthyroidism due to Graves' disease. Let's go back to the subacute thyroiditis. These are the viral ones, and these are self-limiting disorders in, in the main self-limiting. Some aren't, but the vast majority are. They initially present with a hyperthyroid phase, and their thyroid hormone they're releasing into the circulation comes from partly a destruction of the thyroid gland due to the viral, the viral infection. So that's just a release of a whole lot of thyroid hormone. That goes away. That gets better. As the viral uh, infection settles down, that gets better. Mm -hmm. But the gland has been damaged, so you become hypothyroid. Mm -hmm. Again, understanding this is to manage it without jumping in and over-treating. So during the hypothyroid phase, mm -hmm. if you have made a diagnosis of subacute thyroiditis, you only ever use symptomatic treatment such as a beta blocker, if there's a problem with tachycardia or other symptoms due to hype, you know, a hyperdynamic state. Mm -hmm. You don't give them antithyroid medication. It's not going to work anyhow. The next phase is when they become hypothyroid is not to jump in and immediately give them thyroxine replacement. It's to monitor, hold the patient's hand, monitor it very closely as they come back to normal. If they come back, and when they come back to normal, all is well. And that's what happens to the vast majority. Some don't. Some, their glands are so damaged that mm -hmm. they don't come back to normal. They stay hypothyroid. In that case, then you introduce thyroxine replacement mm -hmm. therapy. So that, that's you know, sometimes difficult, mm -hmm. but, but you've got a clear plan of what you do. So if it's Hashimoto's, then I think, and you've got strongly positive, or you've got positive thyroid peroxidase antibodies, as we talked mm -hmm. about before, and you do an ultrasound and you can see the damage to the thyroid gland. Well, they're the ones you're going to start on thyroxine. And our plan, as we said early on, was to work out if they've got symptoms or not and whether treatment addresses those symptoms. And uh, if that doesn't address those symptoms, then we look for other mm -hmm. underlying problems with the patient. I think that has answered a lot of my questions, Chris. It's really, really helpful. What are your final messages to our listeners? Well, my first, my final messages is to ensure that one has adequate 
indeed optimal RDN nutrition. And we've discussed the various aspects when that's under threat and how one may address that. That's the first thing. The second information we gave was the treatment of hypothyroidism and how one should manage the patient through this with appropriate thyroxine medication, or if that's not working to relieve symptoms, what else you need to look for, what you need to do. The third message I gave really related to, again, back to a woman of reproductive age, ensuring that she is getting enough iodine well before she gets pregnant, ensuring that she takes that during a pregnancy, and also defining risk uh, for women who become hypothyroid during the pregnancy and how it's critical that that be diagnosed and treated as soon as possible and managed well throughout the whole pregnancy. The other message really related to the elderly as to how to manage thyroid hormone replacement therapy. And finally, where do we get our information from? As I said, there are several sources. The, for the patient, the GP, the Australian Thyroid Foundation is a wonderful source of information either going on their website and looking uh, for that information. If you're a patient, joining the Australian Thyroid Foundation so that you have access to all the information they have on their website. You have access to counselling and information from uh, expert lay counsellors. They're not medical practitioners. And finally, you know that you can ask questions either by phone or by email uh, through the Australian Thyroid Foundation, through the CEO who, if she can't answer them, she will direct them to one of her experts on her medical um, practitioner's advisory panel. The other sources of information are the uh, New South Wales Health, the posters on iodine and pregnancy. And finally, for medical practitioners, in fact, all of us, if we need to understand a little bit more about any specific aspect of thyroid disease, then you'll find it in a wonderful online textbook called thyroidmanager.org. Uh, it's easy to access, it's free of charge, and you can download whatever you like from that site. That was such a pleasure speaking with you, um, Chris. I really enjoyed that and learned so much. All right, David, that's been good. Thank Have you. a very good day. I certainly okay. enjoyed myself and learned a lot. Thanks, my pleasure. Bye. <laughs> Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.